Hi, everyone. Welcome to the season finale of the Women Blazers podcast. I'm your host, Deanna Witter. Now, in this third season, we have heard the career journeys of 59 incredible women Blazers since launching this podcast. And I'm excited to have Kim Stone as our featured guest for this 60th episode. Now, Kim serves as the president of UBS Arena, home of New York Islanders, and the executive vice president for Oakview Group East Coast. In this episode, Kim shares her remarkable and decorated career journey where she has served in executive leadership positions for two of the top global brands in sports, the Miami Heat and the Golden State Warriors. There truly is nothing this woman can't do as she has led and governed all aspects of business and facility operations across her career, making her what I would consider an industry Swiss army knife. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Turnkey ZRG, for supporting Women Blazers this season. Turnkey ZRG is a top talent search firm in sports, entertainment, music, and media. We appreciate Turnkey ZRG's role in advancing gender equity in our industry. In terms of what I loved most about the experience, that's an easy one. It's the people. I'm a very people-oriented person, so for me, it's about the team, it's about um, your leadership. Uh, that matters a lot, you know. As you, as your listeners are navigating their careers, you know, I always like to tell folks, you know, who you work for is uh, equally, if not the most important uh, factor in your job. Yes, money, absolutely, money matters. Absolutely, title matters. But the leaders that you work for really matter because. It's under their guidance that you're going to learn and grow and develop as a person. Now, Kim, you attended the University of North Carolina and received your bachelor's degree in PR and journalism. So how did you make your college selection and what's a path in sports, your original career plan? I love that we're starting with this question because it sort of (laughs) sums up my career. So I actually started at UNC Wilmington, which is on the coast of North Carolina. I grew up in Western North Carolina uh, near Asheville Hmm. and uh, I always wanted to go to the beach. So I ended up as what I refer to as a glorified walk-on for the UNC Wilmington uh, women's basketball team. So I wasn't good enough to get a scholarship, but I was good enough to get a, a verbal from the coach asking me to come and and play. So long story short, I went to UNC Wilmington, started out there, and I was a, a geology major because I wanted to pursue marine biology. So oh. what a different life I could have had. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so what, but what, what happened um, was I got disenfranchised with geology simply because the, the market for careers had actually fallen quite considerably because the, the bottom had fallen out of the gas industry at that time, because that's usually where geologists ended up and, and marine biologists um, sort of in, in that, that field. So anyway, long story short, I decided I wanted to transfer into Chapel Hill. My sister, who is a year and a half older than me, was at Chapel Hill. It is very hard to transfer into Chapel Hill because it's such a competitive um, school, but I found what I referred to as the back door, which was there's nobody transferring into Chapel Hill as a geology major. <laughs> right. But they do offer geology as a major. So my sister gave me that tidbit. And so at the time I was able to transfer in as a geology major and I didn't want to stay a geology major for the for the points I mentioned. 
But instead, once I got in, I was able to then go to any school in Chapel Hill that I wanted to. And because once you're in, you're in. And so I decided to go to the journalism school, which was at the time and is often um, throughout the years, one of the top journalism, journalism schools in the nation. Uh, I think now they call it mass communications. Um, so I got, it was just a, again, it's a, it's a, it's a precursor to my, my career because it's always about doing something a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, and getting, but yet still getting to uh, the ultimate goal of where I want to be. So that, that's how I ended up at um, Chapel Hill. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I love that you navigated and you found a way to get to where you wanted and good old sister helping you out. Giving you a, a <laughs> yes, chance, you know. like, <laughs> she owed me. Yes, yes for sure. I bet she did. <laughs> <laughs> now, as, as you just defined that PR and journalism was the path once you got there and obviously, you know, one of the top programs that you can get into, what, what was the vision for the career once you decided that that was, you know, the path that you wanted to take once you were there? Yeah, PR was my passion. And in high school, I had been the sports editor of our high school newspaper. So I sort of sort of shifted back into that as my passion. And um, I was going through the, the program and I was fortunate enough to land a student sports information um, assistance uh, position within the um, athletic department at Carolina. And those were coveted. And what, what had happened is I had gotten an internship at USA Boxing hmm. through um, my counselor at Carolina. My USA Boxing um, uh, boss was good friends with uh, the Rick Brewer at the time who was running and was the sports information director for Carolina. And so that's how I got the contact and got the position at Carolina. So I started my career in the sports information department, um, you know, as a student uh, intern in Chapel Hill. And then that uh, led to an opportunity post-college um, at the University of Miami. And so that's how I ended up in Miami. And uh -huh. that's, uh, that's how I ended up in sports. And then I went on and in 2003, I got my MBA because I realized, you know, sports is, is big business, multi-billions, right? Maybe even trillion now these days. Um, so I realized uh, that I needed to get my MBA, which I did go back and get in 2003. That's wonderful. And, and obviously the path led you to, to Miami and obviously navigating mm -hmm. the sports industry with this incredible degree that you had and also with your MBA, which is, which is incredible. And then you launched your career in sports, your professional you know, career in sports with Miami Heat while you're in Florida. Um, and in your first 10 years, you held various leadership positions. So I'm, I'd love for you to share with us, you know, how you landed sort of that first role with the Miami Heat. And then how did you navigate through the various opportunities and leadership to gain a great foundation? And Absolutely. The Heat is a fantastic organization, you know, run by somebody that I consider not just my mentor, but my champion, uh, Eric Woolworth. He's the president. And then the Arison family is hands down one of the best owners in all of professional sports. Um, so I enjoyed my 23 years uh, there with my first round, uh, my first stint. And it started because I was um, working on the statistics crew for the uh, organization. And Andy Ellisberg, who is now the general manager and has been for quite some time, Andy started in the PR department. And it just happened that he, uh, there was a the ownership change where the Arisons and Mickey Arison became the majority owner that opened up a position because Andy moved into basketball operations and then went on to become, you know, a, 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 one of the best GMs in the NBA. Yeah. But back in the day, he moved, he moved out of PR 
into basketball ops and that opened up a position in the PR uh, department and that's the position that I started with and then from there it was just always about raising my hand so I started I had the good fortune of starting one month before Pat Riley was hired and I will never forget we were in the old Miami arena and the coffee room was this narrow little tiny room and I was pouring myself my my morning cup of coffee <laughs> and I literally felt this presence walk into the room like I really had my back to the door and I turned around and there's Pat Riley right standing wow. standing right before <laughs> me I had no idea I'm you know I'm, I've just I, I'm barely I'm 30 days into my job and he turns to me and he says or he comes in and he says how's the coffee around here and I just said well um, it's pretty good you know here you go would you like a cup right <laughs> so uh, and then I just had the good fortune right of being in the PR department the sports PR department for the heat when Pat started with mm -hmm. the heat and then that I just was on an amazing ride and so we then built um, what was then became American Airlines Arena is now FTX Arena you know and um, throughout the course of that time there was just a lot of growth the organization was going from being a tenant to actually operating uh, you know a facility the county owns it but they operate it and I just there were lots of opportunities so I just kept raising my hand and saying hey I, hey I'm sort of interested in that I'll, I'll help you and I would often help before I would get the title right like I would start um, working or start and if I had any free time helping and volunteering and doing some things and that's really how I got noticed by other departments and and in other areas so I just kept raising my hand and saying I'll try that um, and the the best example of that was we had opened American Airlines Arena and we needed some programming and some summer programming so the heat signed up and had a WNBA team so I raised my hand and I said hey I really want to do that I think that would be fun so I got to be senior director of operations I helped with the publicity to get the team the certain number of deposits that were needed and helped run the team it was fantastic I called that period of my career um, that I, I refer to myself as an executive in training wheels and here's yeah. why because I was reporting into the CMO Michael McCullough who's hands down to me one of the best in the business and still there at the heat and a good friend I reported into him and would, you know, for all the marketing and all the positioning, he was fantastic and he absolutely loved and adored the WNBA. And then into the GM uh, for basketball operations so at that time was Randy Fund um, and uh, Andy was working as uh, the assistant general manager. So I had these great basketball minds that were guiding me and telling me how to run the team. So man, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. So, you know, through it all, I had nine different jobs um, in those 23 years, and I just got to touch every aspect of the business, um, and I loved it. I loved it. It's a great organization, um, and they, they, they still are. A lot of the executive team is still there, yeah. and um, Miami, will, Miami will always be home to me because when you've been somewhere for as long as I was, it tends to be your home, yes. um, but, I, but for now, I'm really enjoying my time in New York. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And just reflecting back, you know, that time. And I love how you how you explained it, because it's so important, like something so simple, like raising your hand to help and, you know, sort mm -hmm. of follow the, the path of curiosity in a new opportunity in a role is, is so important. Like you don't have somebody doesn't have to ask you to be a part of it. You can be assertive and 
and, you know, sort of put yourself out there, um, which I think is just, just a great <laughs> insight and takeaway. Right. And as we think about it, our past, you know, even forward, you know, in, in that regard. So I, I appreciate yes. you sharing that. I think it's a great lesson. Absolutely. I even, to your point, um, I petitioned to get that WNBA role and I got, I got, I got a little chastised for being, you know, sort of uh, very, I'll just say very forward uh, yes. in expressing my interest. Um, but I got the job, yeah. you know, I mean, and no regrets. And, you know, I, I understood, you know, so yeah, exactly. No regrets. And then also just thinking about your 23 years. Um, one of the things that I, when I, when I think about your role there, um, one of the, one of the stops that you had in, in the nine positions you held over the 23 years was in 2012, you were promoted and named the executive vice president and general manager of American airlines. And in this position, you know, so much goes into your work and ensuring that you deliver for every single event. And just curious, like from your experiences, even today, and obviously back then, you know, how do you handle sort of the anxiety and stresses of a role such as this? (laughs) (laughs) Without having to drink a bottle of wine, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. How how did you know wine was my vice? Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) so it's, listen, it's a great question because when, you know, when you bring together, you know, 18, 20,000 people or more, if you run you know, a, a ballpark or a stadium, when you bring them, you know, people together uh, in that, and then, you, you know, with, with just sort of the world where it is today, and in, in terms of, you know, bad people wanting to do bad things, yeah. you know, those, it's your job to keep everybody safe. You know, the number one thing that I do is safety and security, right? That's the number one thing you can provide. Um, and so it, so you do stay up late, you do worry about things. I am the one that when there was a bomb threat, um, at an event I ran into, I was off that day. I went into the building. Wow. <laughs> and so as I get, as I got to the police perimeter mm-hmm. of that one, I'm talking to the cop and they were just, you know, these were, these were cops who, you know, they didn't know me. They didn't know I had my ID. I was talking, I was, I had to convince them <laughs> that like, I, yes, I was going into the building and I had to, you know, we, I got them to get in touch with somebody that we at the police force that we worked with and they are like, yeah, she's, she's allowed in. <laughs> but, but so to your point, like these are the things that, you know, you don't have to do, you know, it's just sort of a little bit of my makeup. Um, I'm exceptionally good in crisis, um, especially just to come in and be calm, a calming influence. Like people would say, why would you run in? You had your staff, your staff knows what to do. Absolutely. They knew what to do. Absolutely. They did. They just needed me there to say, you're doing a great job. Everything's right. okay. And I got your back. Go do what you go do what you're trained to do. Go do what you're meant to do. Like don't, I'm not coming here to micromanage this. I'm not coming here to take charge. I'm coming here to cheer you on and tell you you're doing a great job. Um, so it takes a team. So to answer, it's a long, that's a story to give you the answer to your question, yeah. which is that you have to empower your team and you have to have a great team and you have to trust your team. Um, you're going to spend a lot of nights and weekends. You're going to have some, you know, crazy situations um, that arise. And so it really is about your team because you can't work 24, 7, 365. It's just, it's not physically possible to do that. So you have to um, empower your staff. You have to be a good leader to them um, and you have to let them do their jobs and you have to coach and develop them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that makes, that makes complete sense. And I, I love the story and I, I appreciate you, you know, um, really put it in a perspective, you know, in that, in that way, because it does help understand, you know, 
gosh, like to your point, you know, safety is, is number one security. And, and that is probably the utmost thing that would, you know, keep you up at night, but, but the trust that you have in your team and Mm -hmm. your leadership style, you know, comes down to it, just the confidence um, and what you've done to prepare for those moments Mm -hmm. um, is is so clear. And if you weren't prepared, yeah, I mean, the anxiety and stress would be higher. Um, (laughs) If you were, you know, I think that's where it probably rolls in. So, no, I appreciate that perspective. It, it's very helpful. And, and it's a great, again, and just another great insight into the role and in and, and the responsibilities you had um, there at the heat. You know, I think the other thing that, you know, is important, again, this is 23 years of your career, you know, um, just reflecting back, like the experiences you had, you know, championships and, you know, ownership changes and, you know, the, everything with the arena uh, and even with the WNBA team, um, you know, what, what, for you just reflecting back, like what did you love most about the experience? And do you have a favorite moment that you can share? If you can, if you can name just one. Sure. You're making it hard. Like <laughs> naming your favorite child, right? <laughs> so um, in terms of what I loved most about the experience, that's an easy one. It's the people. I'm a very people oriented person. So for me, it's about the team. It's about um, your leadership. Uh, that matters a lot. You know, as you, as your listeners are navigating their careers, you know, I always like to tell folks, you know, who you work for is uh, equally, if not the most important uh, factor in your job. Yes, money, absolutely money matters. Absolutely title matters. But the leaders that you work for really matter because it's under their guidance that you're going to learn and grow and develop as a person, right? And you want to learn and grow from the best. And I have just been incredibly fortunate in my career to work for some of the best in the business. So it was about the people. So it was about the executive team in Miami. We had each other's backs. And I'm not saying we didn't elsewhere. So please don't get me wrong. Um, it's just when you spend 23 years somewhere, like you you know, you can finish sentences. And so then the, that's a tough question about, you know, my favorite moment to share. Um, because there were so many, you know, with, as you mentioned, three, you know, championships there, um, a lot of amazing events that we hosted. But I'd have to go back to, uh, when we won in 2006, the first championship for the Heat, um, and it was against the Mavericks, and it was in Dallas, and Pat, you know, Pat in in Pat's way had, uh, it was game six, so it wasn't game seven, it was game six, hmm. I think that's, I think that's right, um, it wasn't the final game, and we were in Dallas, and Pat had packed one shirt, one suit, and one tie, and he had <laughs> said to the team, like, we're, we're, we're going out there, and we're going to win this thing, um, and so anyway, long story short, we did. And we, so we won in Dallas. And so the organization had flown a lot of the staff out to the game, mm-hmm. right? So that was really special. And so we were there in the building when the team won. And so at the end, Pat's like, let's all go back to the hotel and let's go have a celebration. So we go back to the hotel, which is in the middle of nowhere. So it was out <laughs> on the outskirts um, of Dallas. And long story short, there was no place to go and get a beer or wine. And, and, and oh, by the way, after you're finished celebrating, you know, and taking all the pictures at the, at the arena, it was like one o'clock in the morning, uh, (laughs) one o'clock in the morning. So we go back to this resort and the only thing that they had to drink was champagne. Well, I don't drink champagne. It gives me an incredible headache, like just makes me miserable. So I didn't drink, but everybody else did. And that was (laughs) just, it was, it was entertaining to see people that you've worked with forever, really let their hair down and really to celebrate. It was so much fun. And then we get on the flight, we fly back to Miami and literally myself and Michael McCullough, the CMO, we get off the plane, we go straight to a meeting of like 300 
uh, various folks from various agencies in the county to plan the parade. So that to me will always be, there were some just hilarious moments and the, the just exuberance and enthusiasm that, um, that you saw and the way you got to celebrate with all of people that you consider now, some of them are my best friends. Um, it was, that's gotta be the highlight. Oh, what a, what a great story and, and, and experience for sure. And I'm sure sometimes you just sort of reflect back and go, did that really happen? Like, like <laughs> did that really, it feels like a moment. I, I had a similar yeah. experience, you know, with the calves and, you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes I have to pinch myself um, that I was yeah. in the room and in that moment, you know, of, of history. So I, I feel, yeah. And I, I love that. And, and, and especially well, when you started that, you know, in terms of the people, I mean, your experiences yes. are defined with the people that you have those experiences mm-hmm. with. And so I can, I can also greatly appreciate um, your sentiment to just the wonderful individuals that you got to work with and, and still obviously call your friends and your extended family. So well said when you get to, to do it with people that you consider, you know, really close friends. Um, it's just that more, much more special. It really is. It really is. Now, in, in 2019, you, you make a big move in your career mm. um, and you joined the Golden State Warriors. I'm curious, you know, what inspired this move in your career and how did you determine it was the right move for you and at the right time? Sure. It's a great question and I get asked it a lot. Um, <laughs> and I had like three main criteria for, for leaving. Um, one was it had, remember, leadership is important to me. So there had to be a great leader. Um, in the organization and that box got checked because I would be working for Rick Welts, right? Yeah. He's in the Sports Hall of Fame as a business executive. So that was number one. Number two, it had to be a place um, that my, where my family wanted to go. And that, that happened. That's um, my, when I was in college, my dad moved to the Bay Area. So I would spend my summers, once I, once I uh, transferred to Chapel Hill, I would spend my summers uh, working in San Francisco. I would live with him in the summers, him and my, oh. my brother and sister, and I would um, take the BART into the city and I worked on Pier 39. So those <laughs> of your, your fans who know, um, Pier 39 is one of the big tourist areas yes. uh, in San Francisco. So I did that. So it was, it was, for me, I fell in love with the city during my college days. Um, so that, it checked that box. And then it was the opportunity to open truly one of the most magnificent buildings um, in the NBA. I mean, that yeah. Chase Center is fantastic. What Joe, the vision Joe and Peter had, and Rick, um, the execution by Brandon Schneider, the president now, and that whole team in terms of the sponsorships and the ticket sales, that team, it was, it was just an amazing team to be an amazing part of. And if it wasn't for COVID, um, which had us pivot back to be closer to friends and family, if it wasn't for COVID, we might still be there. Um, right. And I'm so happy for them and lots of lots of friends there that, you know, won a championship last year. So it was those were really the three reasons. Right. Uh, it was leadership. It was uh, going to an area of the count of the country that I myself and my family love. And it was, um, you know, the chance to open a, a new one billion dollar facility. Those are just rare career opportunities. Yes, they are. And I, I think, you know, I, I love how you describe that, too, in terms of just like you, you clearly were in a really good place in Miami, but you had this thing, you know, the criteria set for, hey, if I I'm, I'm, can only imagine how many calls you got <laughs> between the time that you were there and knowing your criteria and knowing what, 
is is for you like what would what mm-hmm. would determine and put you in a position to make a move and these are very i mean opening this uh, an arena such as chase center i mean that's a career defining opportunity and then making mm-hmm. sure you check those other boxes um you know working for rick welts and and obviously being in a place where you know your family would enjoy and it brought you back to a place that that was nostalgic for you that you remember having yes. great memories at and i think that's fantastic and it's a good reflection of understanding like you know, the homework of what is our, what's my criteria? What's your criteria as listeners mm-hmm. um, that would, that would make sense for you to, to make a move in your career and what you're looking for in any next move as you, as you look to sort of sort of blaze your path forward. Um, and, and like in this role too, you know, as you mentioned, the stakes were high. You're opening a $1.3 billion <laughs> facility, this new entertainment destination. And now you're responsible for leading and navigating through a global pandemic, you know, yeah. um, yeah. you know, so what I, I can only imagine the test this had, you know, for all of you, yeah. I mean, we, I lived it too. I mean, this, we're navigating through this unknown situation, you know, what was your approach to leadership in this role and what were your key takeaways from the experiences gained and the challenges that you faced? So great question. Again, um, this is where I think it was such an advantage to be with the warriors, um, during a time of global disruption um, mm-hmm. because they are a very nimble, flexible organization that responds quickly to challenges. Um, it's just, you know, Peter Lake, uh, uh, sorry, Joe Lake is a venture capitalist. And so, you know, he just thinks differently, uh, thinks very agilely, thinks very flexibly. So what when the pandemic hit, clearly it was a, you know, it started out being, and, and it, it ends up being an airborne virus, but at the right. time, nobody understood what it was. And so it was very, you're very focused on the venue. And so what Rick did was he sort of put Brandon and I to sort of um, restructure the organization and put it in a way that we could pursue opportunities that may help us get out of the pandemic faster while also making sure that we had equipment and testing in order to reopen the building because we had the warriors are as you know the most profitable uh, yeah. well they generate the most revenue in the nba by far yeah and so there was a lot of revenue at stake and so uh we would we talked to everybody if somebody called us and said i have you know a drone flying uh that flies and uh, sprays you know disinfectant and it's got uv and it can do backflips and it's you know, <laughs> got you know bedazzled then you know we would talk to them we talked to everybody to see what was available because we knew we were in probably one of the most stringent counties in the nation mm-hmm. in terms of the ability to bring people back together in large groups we knew we were the first to shut down and we would be the last to reopen so we really worked hard and i tell you we worked hard we worked so hard but you know it's a big credit to they, well, I should back up and say, Rick created something called Operation Dub Nation. And so it was that restructure reorganization that I mentioned. And mm-hmm. then we would meet twice a week with the ownership and we would just sort of debrief and update each other on what we, what we had seen and what we'd heard and what we'd talked about. And we were constantly iterating over and over and over again. And then you may recall um, the NBA was issuing memos at like 5 p.m. every Friday yeah. <laughs> telling, telling us what we needed to do. Um, and so we ended up working through weekends quite often. Um, but between you know some of the information and guidance from the NBA, the sort of approach to the Operation Dub Nation that Rick put together, it was really Rick's idea. I mean, there's some great articles written about it. Um, we really positioned ourselves 
to handle the influx of information, we stopped becoming a sports and entertainment company, right? And we just became a company that was reacting to the COVID situation and, and trying to make sure we were preserving, that we could reopen, remember, safely, because it's always right. about safety when you open it. So it was, it was a, it was a amazing opportunity. It was exhausting, <laughs> to say the least. Yes, it was. But it's, you know, a big shout out to, you know, Rick, to Brandon Schneider, to Yo-Yo Chan, who was the government affairs, to Peter and Joe for you know, running the team, and uh, David Kelly, uh, the attorney. We, we, would, we, we spent hours and hours talking and communicating, and it was, uh, you know, it was really Rick's leadership that um, shone during that time uh, for us. And so I learned so much. And I often joke, I went out to San Francisco and didn't realize I'd have to open Chase Center twice, first <laughs> physically to open it and then to reopen it after COVID. So we were able to do that. You know, the crowning crowning event was we were able to have 1,600 fans come to a Warriors game in May of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a, a real big achievement, especially in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just an incredible experience overall. And you know, um, you know, just everything you, like you said, like everything you gone, you went through during COVID and all that you learned yeah. in, that day, in, in the time that was spent into it, 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 though you weren't there long, I bet you it felt like you were there <laughs> for multiple <laughs> years. I mean, based on the experiences, I can only imagine. That is, <laughs> that is but, so, you are so right. <laughs> you know, it's like, two, you know, it was two years. Yeah. Sort of felt like it 10 was, <laughs> It's like dog years, right? Yeah, like right. Was, one year was seven. That's for sure. I definitely got some gray hairs. In 2021, as you mentioned, um, you know, you, you reopened the building, but um, at this point too, you, you rejoined Miami Heat. So did you yeah. move back to Miami during COVID? Uh, yes. So um, I left the Warriors, I think it was in July of 21. I don't think I know. It was July of 21 <laughs> um, and came back to Miami. You know, it was a lot of uh, hard work and I really enjoyed my time in uh, Golden State and really loved San Francisco and the Bay Area. Really, really love it. My family loved it too. Um, the challenge was our son um, has learning differences. And so the, um, the learning through computer is, is the worst thing um, for him. We decided that moving back to Florida where, um, this is, these are my words, I don't think uh, COVID didn't exist in Florida. I don't think you, I don't know yeah, if you I didn't knew exist this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we moved back to Miami. He went back to the school he had been in before and he's, you know, was doing and is doing um, really, really well. And we um, got back, our, our family lives in Florida and our, you know, some of our good friends um, are in Florida. So, you know, we could gather socially, we, you know, with, but responsibly. Yeah, um, and, and we were working through all of that. So it ended up being a good move um, for our family and especially our son. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, what, what a great opportunity to do that, you know, and obviously the support yes. from, from the Warriors at that point. And then you made the transition back to Miami Heat at that time as well. So yes. you were the EVP of Human Capital and Special Projects. Um, how was it, how was it to return back to the old team um, at that point, you know, after, after, after working in Golden State and in San Francisco? It was um, fantastic. It was like a homecoming. <laughs> um, it was just so wonderful to come back. And um, the special projects component of the job really utilized um, the knowledge I gained in opening Chase Center and just sort of that whole process, because it's a whole different side of facility management. 
and the um, Keats Arena is 20 plus years old. So there was a you know need to do some evaluation and assessment of sort of like what are what were the next best path best paths forward, you know, to monetize renovations and um, get that building continue to make that building you know really driving and optimizing revenue, right? So that was a special project piece. The human capital was brand new. And it is um, was really leveraging um, your typical HR functions, uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because mm -hmm. the Heat, there was a I don't remember what year it was, but the Heat had won the NBA's um, first ever leadership and diversity That's um, right. award, mm -hmm. team award, uh, a, a few years prior. And so they they pride themselves on the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it was adding that uh, piece to it, and then it was also adding the uh, culture and learning. So being very intentional about culture, being very intentional about uh, developing the competencies of the, of the staff and the team. Um, so it was something that I was doing that was new and I was learning and there's an amazing, uh, I in inherited the A-team um, at the Heat because it was uh, Sonia Hardy and Christine Machado and Clara Stroud those three, you know, were overseeing those those three functions that came together under one under the human capital. And so I was so grateful um, to Eric Woolworth, um, who again, as I mentioned, has always been my mentor and a champion uh, for the opportunity to return, and to you know Nick Arison as well um, for you know being willing to, <laughs> to accept me back. Um, and then I can't my my bestie in Miami is Raquel Libman, who's the general counsel there, and a um, a, a game changer in and of herself. So it was really, it was really wonderful um, and a great homecoming. It was great to see a lot of the people. A lot of the people don't leave the heat, and I'm I'm the one who's done it twice. Um, <laughs> so, um, and it's and it certainly is that says more about me than it does about that organization. But there, it's just a wonderful. It's just you know it was nice to go back to Miami. It's when you spend as much time as I have living in Miami. And growing up with the city itself, you know, you just have deep roots um, in the city, and that's it was so from the staff to the community, um, it was it was really nice to go back. I can imagine it was, and I'm, I'm happy to hear you had such a great homecoming and a great opportunity in that year that that you spent, you know, in your return. Yes, uh, but as you just mentioned, like you're one of the only people, maybe in history, to <laughs> leave Miami <laughs> twice. Uh, yes. Because you got this incredible opportunity that you're in right now. You you left Miami once again, and you joined the Oakview Group and were named the president of UBS Arena and the EVP of East Coast Business Operations um, for the mm -hmm. Oakview Group. How has been your experience transitioning to this new position, and what has been the key focuses um, in your first months um, in this new role? Sure, sure. Gosh, great. Uh, lot, lots of uh, things to unpack on that one. Yes. So um, <laughs> it was, so you're right. So a lot of people were, like, why, why are you leaving after, you know, one year in Miami? And I certainly could have um, stayed in Miami for the rest of, you know, my career, for sure. But I was interested in two things. One, remember, leadership to me is important. So the opportunity to work closely with Tim Liewicki, um was something that, you know, I had um, always been interested in. You know, he's just, a, you know, Rick, Eric, and Tim are all great leaders, and they're all very different types of leaders, right? but they are incredible in what they, what they can do and achieve. And so again, so leadership. Oh, and, and also um, uh, Francesca uh, Brody, she is fantastic. I mean, what she has done um, in terms of 
being sort of the architect behind all of these venues that Oakview has opened, I really enjoyed working with her and seeing her work style and her work process. So that's been, so leadership, it checked that box. It was an opportunity also to come back to facility management. It's mm -hmm. sort of like this, you know, this itch that you have that you always have to, <laughs> I always, <laughs> I always have to scratch where I just <laughs> love, you know, I, I love uh, this side of the business. There's nothing like it. There are very few of these jobs. Um, and so I value the opportunity to be part of it. Uh, and so here we are the home UBS arena. Uh, we're in Elmont, New York, which is on Long Island, a 30 minute train ride from New York City. And we are home to the New York Islanders. So uh, who are who are 50% owners of the team as well. So it's, it's a very different setup, a very different structure. Um, and so to your question about what I've, I've been focusing on the last six months, it's been revenue. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm pretending to be you. I'm not nearly as good as you. <laughs> um, but, you know, driving revenues both on our premium suites and our premium inventory, as well as our, our corporate and um, event tickets. Those are really the, those are my three main focuses. Mm. That's fantastic. And what a great opportunity, you know, to your point and to, to join such an incredible group, um, innovative group, yeah. leadership. Um, and, and to your point, you know, puts you back right there where your where your itch is. <laughs> your itch and your yeah. niche, right? <laughs> exactly. I love it. I love it. Well, congratulations to you on this incredible um, opportunity and this this appointment. I, I'm excited to see what happens next at UBS Thanks. and all the things that you'll accomplish in this role. Well, I want I want to invite you and all of your listeners to come visit if you're ever yeah. if you ever if you ever find yourself in New York. You guys reach out to me. Would love to show you. Um, UBS Arena. It is, um, you know, we're in a really competitive market up here in New York, um, but we are closer than people think to New York City, and we've hosted some great events and and all of the Islanders games. So you and everybody have a, a free invitation to come visit. Well, thank you for that, Kim. We'll uh, we'll take you up. Hit hit Kim up on LinkedIn, you guys. Now, in every episode, I, I love to sort of tap into to topics that we sort of explore in, in every episode or various episodes. And this is the last episode of my season, season three. You're, you're, ah. you're episode 60, Kim. So I'm excited about this. Thank you. Yes. The caboose. I'm the caboose. Yes, I love it. Talking about. Right, right. I love it. And one of the topics um, that has reoccurred in this in this season is representation. And I think this is such a, a an important topic, you know, especially as women. It's sort of the, just understanding the the opportunity as women that have the capacity to keep moving forward and opening doors for other women um, and other individuals, you know, across the communities that we represent. So, um, you know, as I think about you and the work that you've done, you know, you've been representing for women in, in an area of our business where women are generally underrepresented in operations and stadium, you know, operations, mm -hmm. especially. Um, and for the LGBTQ community as an openly gay woman in this industry, you know, what is your reflection on representation and the importance to inspire others to push through the challenges or the mountain that we that we see in front of us sometimes? This is a, a great question. Um, it's not easy, right? You know that. You know this. I'm yeah, talking yeah. to somebody that has, you know, herself achieved a lot um, and represented in open doors for, you know, underrepresented folks. Um, so, you know, kudos to you as well. But it's been hard. Um, you know, there are jobs and opportunities that I won't pursue because I know the environment won't be welcoming to my family. Yeah. You know, it is very important to me. My son is, is 12. So it's very important to me that I be able to show up as my authentic self at work 
And that includes whether I'm at a, a concert um, and they come to enjoy the concert or a family show or whether they come to the sporting event itself. It's very important to me that the the staff and, you know, all the way up to the ownership, you know, values or, or just just looks at it and just is like, oh, she's just another executive. Not that she's not that she's a woman and not that she's a gay woman, right? Like those things shouldn't matter. What should matter is your knowledge and and how you go about your business. Again, this is one thing that I really value about what you know Tim and Francesca have done with Oakview Group. They've put a stake in the ground and they're really focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so um, I think it's important. Representation is very important. Um, it's We're not at a point yet where my lifestyle is accepted everywhere um, by any stretch, you know, so there, so there are limitations, um, but that's only, but that's, but we're making inroads and we're opening doors. You know, I think of Raven Jemison, uh, you know, in Milwaukee, she's doing some amazing work um, as well. And so it's important, you asked the question about how important is it to inspire others to push through the challenge. I recognize that I am somebody that people can look up to. And I'll tell you a funny, quick story. Yeah. My son, my son was in a, um, a school when he was pre-K, pre-kindergarten. And there was a, the school was having a session on um, family issues and sort of how to, you know, how to talk age appropriately to your children about this long story. So I'm in this audience. I sit there, uh, two of our good friends, we are one of two um, gay couples in the entire school. Our, the other gay couple is the couple that had hosted and encouraged this panel discussion about family differences and how to talk age appropriately to your kids about them. Long story short, the the session goes on. People are people are asking questions about divorce. Do you how do you handle divorce parents? You know situations. How do you handle this situation? How do you handle that situation? Nobody asks any question about gay parents. <laughs> so <laughs> the session ends. I'm like, I call my friends that had hosted this. And I'm like, hey, you guys, that was a great session. Like, you know, there were so many good topics discussed and they said to me, so did you bring up, did the topic of, you know, gay families come up? I said, no, no, it didn't. And they go, you knucklehead, you should have brought it up then Tim, because <laughs> you, you should have encouraged the conversation, right? You should have, you know, uh, been the one to help instigate it if they didn't bring it up. And I was like, from that point on, I've always made sure that I understand and represent um, my community because yeah. it is important because once you know that you see my, you know, people from this community, you understand we're, we're just people too. And we're, right. just, we're executives and we're, we're not something, um, you know, we're, we're just part, we're just, we pay our taxes. We put our pants on the same way, <laughs> you know, those, those sorts of things. So representation matters and it is important to inspire others. And I recognize that that is a role that um, I play and I value it. I value yeah. the opportunity to do it. So I, I value you giving me the opportunity to express that too. So thank you. No, no. I, and I appreciate you sharing and sharing that story. And it's just a good reflection point of understanding, like in those moments, you know, in those, in those reflection moments too, of just understanding that you're in a room, if you are in a room where, where you are the representation, you know, um, you have an opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's definitely a responsibility, right? And the responsibility mm -hmm. sometimes can feel like a weight. Um, but it's, it's also an opportunity to, to understand, like, here it is, here's my opportunity to represent. And there could be other people in the room 
um, you know, that needed to hear you stand up or say something or do something, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that's so important. Um, and it is very inspirational. And I appreciate you and all that you've done in this industry for women and obviously women of the uh, anybody from the LGBTQ community as well in your representation. I think it's so, so important as we think about our industry and in the direction it's heading. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Now let's talk about, this is one topic I talk about in every episode and you've, you've already shared a lot about your family. So I really appreciate your openness to that. And, um, you know, when we talk about um, lifestyle, we talk in this term of um, exchange of the idea of work-life balance. Mm. So, you know, this is a term often women and obviously women with families, you know, the work-life balance question comes up. And what we've done on this podcast is we've really sort of thrown out this concept of work-life balance. And we really just think about it as lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that, that we've mm-hmm. created um, with, you know, with the people in our lives and, and to obviously um, be able to deliver on the roles that we, you know, that we have in this industry. So I was just curious for you, how do you sort of manage your lifestyle as a mother, a spouse, um, an executive in sports? Yeah. Um, what you're talking about is harmony, right? So I call yeah. it work-life harmony. You know, you're just trying to have that nice, strike that right. Cause it's not a balance. A balance it means that at every moment, point you're in equilibrium 50, 50, whether it's your personal or your professional. And so to me, I love that you all are not using um, balance because you, you're always in a negative situation then because if you're spending your Saturdays uh, doing all your personal stuff, you're neglecting your professional, right? So you're not, you're not 50-50. So it's not really balance. Um, it is lifestyle. It is, uh, I like to call it work-life harmony um, because sometimes I'll over-index in one direction, <laughs> you know, um, depending on what that, you know, depending on what that is. Um, but, but to tell you how I, um, manage it, uh, is to tell you a story, um, that I heard sent Marshall from the Dallas Mavericks, um, tell once. And so she is there, I believe it's CEO or yeah. president. Yeah. I think she's um, CEO. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so she stood up and told a story about uh, she was a, a longtime 30 year AT&T executive before she got the call from Mark Cuban to turn that organization around after they had some, some scandals. Um, but she told a story about how her son was um, competing in swimming and he had a big swim meet and she, and she was a big AT&T executive. And so she was AT&T uh, was really leaning in on her to fly to Washington DC to do some lobbying that was necessary for something that was key for them. And yet her son that same day, her son had his very first swim meet. And so he really wanted her to go. So she told us about this concept of glass ball versus rubber ball. And she said, you, you know, glass ball, you toss a glass ball up in the air and you don't grab it. it, it falls down, it shatters, you never get it back. You toss a rubber ball in the air, it falls down, it bounces and you grab it. And it's, it's the same ball that it was. Um, and you haven't lost anything. So she said she looks, she made the decision with her son as a glass ball, rubber ball. She looked at it that way and she said it was his very first swim meet. Swimming meant a lot to him. So she said, and she knew she would always have lobbying opportunities um, in DC and she could make some phone calls and there's some things that she could do. So she decided in that situation that the lobbying was the rubber ball and that her son's swim meet was the glass ball. And so she went to his swim meet. Now she admitted, in future swim meets, she didn't go <laughs> because <laughs> those became rubber balls because they became something that, you know, he was doing and it was, you know, but important things. And so I, I have a, I have a post-it note on my computer that says glass ball, rubber ball. And when I'm sitting, you know, during the day and I have a choice between, 
you know, to make, I'll, it's, it reminds me daily that to make the decisions based on glass ball, rubber ball. And I always yeah. appreciate Scent telling that story. It's such a, yeah, it's just such a great story. And I, I was actually, I think at the same event that you were at when she shared that story mm. with us on the NBA at the time. And it, it's similar to you. It's been, um, it's definitely something that, that I keep in the back of my mind in those moments. And I always think of this, this concept to your point of, is, is this a glass ball? And if I miss it, you know, I don't get it back, you know, it shatters not just for me, but it shatters for your child or for work or whatever the scenario is, whatever you've determined the glass ball or the rubber ball is. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's so important in reflection of, of how we're constantly sort of juggling <laughs> these balls in the air mm. in terms of getting through day to day, month to month, year to year um, to also, also live out sort of this, this dream that we have or this, you know, this thing of this industry that we're a part of, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always love to end with um, just a little bit of advice um, and would love for you to share what advice um, you have for our listeners looking to grow their careers in this sports industry. Um, number one, listen to your podcast. Right? <laughs> <I'd like laughs> so, I mean, that was a shameless plug. Oh, but um, in, <laughs> in addition, though, I will say, you know, you, you, you learn. I li- as, I, as I told you before we started, I listened to the podcast because you learn something from everybody's career and there might be a little you know, leadership um, tidbit that you can apply, or you just never know what you're going to, what you're going to find. So that's number one. Number two um, is just, you know, be flexible and, you know, consider unique ways to get to where you ultimately want to be. You know, my career has been anything but um, standard and typical. Um, It's been very unique and atypical. And so you can, you know, you can, you can have a unique way to get to where you want just be clear about what you want. You know, there's a a great quote from Madeline Albright that said, you know, says there is no certain roadmap to success. Ultimately, it's a matter of judgment, a question of choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's really sort of boils it down for me. So that's number two, be flexible and consider unique options. And then number three is just something I've always had um, that I've valued, which is just continuous and and never ending um, learning. Like, you know, read, learn. There's so much you can do um, I'm taking a Google Analytics course um, right now online because mm-hmm. especially after the pandemic, there is so much available um, to you to continue. So you don't necessarily have to go back and get a formal degree. You know, you can improve your skills just through, you know, sitting at your home, you know, spending, you know, an hour on a weekend or or two, you know, or two going through it. So, you know, just those those three things, you know, listening, listen, truly listening to your podcast, being flexible. Um, and then just continuous and never-ending uh, learning. Uh, such incredible advice to end on. Thank you so much, <laughs> as well as your incredible advice, the insights, and just for you taking the time to share your experiences and your incredible career journey with us today, Kim. And uh, thank, thank you. you for everything um, and this opportunity to have you on the podcast as well. No, I I am grateful um, to you as, as well and um, to your listeners and you know, thank you. I, I I know our careers and paths will continue to cross, and I do hope I see you out here in New York soon. And that's a wrap on season three. Thank you to Kim for sharing her journey and insights with all of us today. And as a thank you to Kim, our friends at Turnkey ZRG has purchased a one-year membership for her to join the Pro Sports Assembly, an industry member-led association helping advance equity and pro sports. I want to thank Turnkey ZRG for their incredible support and in believing in the mission of this podcast. 
And as a reminder to you all, to stay connected and to engage with the Women Blazers community, follow us on Instagram, even in the off-season. And to close, I want to thank all of the listeners and all of my guests. Together, we are breaking down the walls of the unknown by investing time to share, and most importantly, to listen and learn from each other's experiences. So stay curious, stay determined, and stay committed to the journey you are blazing.